Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. comes from the book of Esther from the Old Testament. And if you haven't had a chance to read Esther, it's very easy to read. It's only 10 chapters. My Bible study, going through it word by word and asking questions and discussing it, was able to read through it in less than two sessions. So you could probably get through it yourself in about an hour. It's a great book to read. And what it does is recount a story from the Babylonian exile. Babylon came into Judea destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and carried off, as was their custom of conquest, the upper echelons from political, socioeconomic, and the religious quarters of the people. And so all of those were taken back to the capital in Babylon to be re-educated, to use their talents in the service of the monarchy there, and to live in exile. And some of them would never return from exile. They would either die there in those 70 years or they would just not come home when finally Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon and invites them to return to their home country. So this was a story of exile. And in the midst of of their exile comes this account of Esther. And Esther is a Jewish woman. She is an orphan. Her parents are both deceased. And her uncle, I'm sorry, her cousin Mordecai, often he's portrayed as her uncle, but her cousin does what the Torah requires, and that is to care for the orphan and takes her in and raises her and allows her to continue to grow and to survive because being an orphan was often a death sentence back in those days when you didn't have someone who was designated to care for you. There was no social safety net or construct that would allow for that. And so he had raised her and was deeply invested in her. And at one point in the opening of Esther, the king has a queen named Vashti, and the king one night in some drunken debauchery feels like it would be appropriate if he called in his queen, who is said to be very lovely, and parade her in front of his drunken friends and guests. Queen Vashti thought that this was abhorrent and refused to come. Then, at the urging of his drunk and disorderly friends and guests, he banished her because she would not heed his call to come and see him. And then the same friends and uh, (laughs) and officials thought it would be appropriate to find a new queen. So the story goes that they sent out looking for all the good-looking virgins. And lo and behold, one of those is Esther. And they bring her in, and the king is very taken with her. She's apparently a very striking young woman. And so he ends up choosing Esther to be his new queen, and he marries her, and he's taken with her, and things go very well for a time. But in the midst of this, Mordecai, her cousin, is having what was first tension and then overt, uh, just complete breakdown between he and another one of the king's officials by the name of Haman. And Haman becomes so just filled with animosity towards Mordecai that it extends to Mordecai's people, the Jews. And so he determines that he's going to use political machination to destroy all the Jews that are living in the province of Susa where the palace is. And he's able to accomplish this because Haman is well thought of by the king. It's at that time that when it becomes known to Mordecai that an edict has gone out that in all the provinces that the neighbors are allowed to rise up on a given day and are called to utterly destroy, annihilate, and kill, it actually says that in the text, 
every Jew, man, woman, and child. Mordecai is distraught. He thinks there's only one person to whom I can turn to. There is only one hope for us. And so he sends message to Esther. He is not allowed to enter the palace. And so you may have caught that they're actually sending messages through the eunuchs who tend to the queen. So they're carrying the messages back and forth. And he says, you must do something. This edict is here. Esther, you have to do something. And where I began was in Esther's response where she says, you know the law. The law says that no one may come to the king without being called. If I step into the inner chamber and I have not been called, then they will kill me. My only hope is to somehow rely upon his clemency by extending his scepter to me. I haven't been asked to see him in 30 days. I may have fallen out of his favor. I don't know what he's thinking, but if I walk into that chamber, I could surely die. The chances of me being saved are lower because he hasn't seen me in 30 days. Someone else may now be meeting his needs, and this could be the end of me as well as you. And Mordecai changes the trajectory of the conversation with his response. His response to her is, God may have put you here for this purpose. He sees something in Esther. He sees she's not just a pretty face. She's not just a puppet queen. She has the ability to change the entire future for countless Jews living in exile, saving them if she chooses this risk. For she can use what she has been given, this position, this power, and this authority to change the heart of the king, to advocate for her people, and he tells her that he has no doubt that somehow, some way, God will rise for the Jews. That hope will come from somewhere. However, when those of us who are asked to step forward don't do it, there may be an extended period of time of suffering and pain and violence and death in the midst of that. And so he says, now is your time, Esther. Now is your time. And because he tells her that he sees something in her, and in her role, in her place, in her position, because he can see something of worth and value in her, her response changes to him. And she says, fine, here's what we're going to do. Like the queen and the leader she is, she comes up with a plan, and she initiates the idea that he's going to gather all the Jews on the outside in the provinces, and they are going to come together in a spiritual discipline of fasting. For three days, they will neither eat nor drink, relying entirely on God's grace to live. And during that time, they will be united in their prayer and in their practice. And she and her maids inside the palace will do the same thing. And then at the end of those three days, having been in prayer and discernment and in supplication, then she shall do what he has asked. And she will enter into the chamber and approach the king. And she says, if I die, I die, but I will do this. I will do this for God. I will do this for my people. And I suspect there's a piece of her that is doing it for Mordecai. And that is that moment when everything could change for her. Her life is pretty good. She's a queen. She's got a crown. She's got maids. She's got food and comfort and safety and security. She has power and privilege. Why risk all of that? She'll never set foot outside of the palace. She could go about her life as if nothing has ever changed. But that's not what God expects of God's people. God expects us to use what we have been given for not only the glory of God, but for the goodness of others. And what Mordecai does is show us that we have a role and a duty in the kingdom, 
even as it's being built, before it comes to fruition again, when Christ returns. Here and now, we are called to do what Mordecai does and see the potential and the gifts and the graces in other people, to not only name them and acknowledge them and celebrate them, but to encourage them, to invite them, to use them in powerfully transformative ways. Every single person has gifts and graces that God can use for the building of the kingdom. They are all different and they are diverse. And the Apostle Paul spends an innumerable amount of time talking about that, that it's not a hierarchy of gifts, but a multiplicity of gifts. And that not one gift is better than another, but that together all of our gifts make us more capable as a whole. That's the image of the body of Christ. My suspicion is that the committee system in the Methodist church was intended to be modeled kind of after what Mordecai does. I see these gifts in you. I see that you have these talents. Would you be willing to use those and your time here in the church instead of us sitting around going, who hasn't been on trustees for a while? Let's call them. Or I think that person knows how to handle a mortgage. Let's throw something on the wall and see what sticks. Instead, it's meant to be a prayerful acknowledgement and a celebration of what you see in another person. In fact, this is exactly what will happen when Esther approaches the king. She has gifts. She has amazing gifts. Apparently, it's an event planning of all the things. And so when she enters into the chamber, fully prepared to die, the king sees her and extends the golden scepter to her, and she comes forward and receives that mercy. And then he says, hello, Esther, what would you like? What can I do for you today? Who knows what he's been doing for 30 days, but they seem okay. She says, I would like to invite you to a private dinner party, you and your official Haman, the two of you, allow me to host you, have a wonderful dinner, and that's what I would like to do. I would like to show you my gifts of hospitality. Says, that sounds like a good idea. See you Friday. And so they show up, the two of them, at Esther's quarters, and she's had this wonderful party prepared, and the food is fabulous, and the music and everything. And he's so impressed with her and what she's done, he says, Esther, what can I do for you? If you want up to half of my kingdom, I will give it to you. And Esther says, let's do this again. Let's have another party. And the king goes, all right, let's do that. Let's have another party. And Haman, you're coming back, and we'll, we'll just do this round two. Let's do it. And so as they come back the second time, it's only then, only then, when he says, Esther, what can I do for you? Up to half of my kingdom I will give to you. It is only then that Esther finally says, let me live. Allow me to live. Don't let me be put to death. And he's confused. The king says, what are you talking about? She says, I am a Jew. And there is an edict that threatens not only me, but all of my people with death. I am pleading for our lives. Save me and my people. It's only then that the king realizes what his own official Haman has done. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends. <laughs> not going to tell you, but it's good. You're going to want to read it. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. And the, the truth is that if Mordecai hadn't, and this is somebody who knew Esther, knew her, had a relationship with her, if he didn't take the step of saying, you need to do this, I see this in you and you need to do this, who knows what would have happened? How many Jews would have died? Human history is filled with all kinds of violence and death against Jews. 
not only from genocide within the scriptures and in the Middle East, but the pogroms in Russia, the Holocaust in Europe, and even <coughs> racial tensions with Jews to this day here in this country. These are a people who are continually attacked and killed. And Esther finds her place to stop it. She becomes a messianic figure, saving God's people with her willingness to risk herself for them. An advocate, advocate for them with the king. It's risky. I mean, we already know that he's not against setting aside a queen. And yet she's willing to do that because she is convinced from her relationship with Mordecai that maybe this is what God wants of her. Maybe the God that she loves and has been raised to serve can use her for something incredible. But it's not without personal risk. There are countless people in the church that experience this. I've told some of you my call story that includes an associate pastor, the first female pastor I ever physically saw. I didn't even know that we actually stocked those. Recognizing that perhaps there was something in me. And as we were preparing for that annual time when all of the youth in the church would kind of get together and plan the worship services, we took over all three worship services one time a year because Lord knows that that's more than enough. <laughs> with the, our youth group was a little wily. Uh, that was plenty. And the tradition had been for graduating seniors to preach. And so at the age of 17, getting ready to graduate, this opportunity came up and first the associate pastor took volunteers and there were a couple of people, two people like tag team, they're like, we'll do it together, which by the way is not a good way to preach, I know that now. But anyway, so they were going to do that and somebody else took another service and then she looked at me and she said, Sarah, I want you to preach the 11 o'clock worship service. And I was like, no. <laughs> first of all, that's the biggest worship service. Second of all, that's the one my parents go to. And third of all, no, I don't want to do that. And she was like, no, I've, I've, I've seen you read scripture. I, I think that you can do this. You're a graduating senior. You're clearly capable of writing things. I, you know, I, think, I think this is what you're going to do. And then because my parents raised me to respect authority, I begrudgingly said yes. But what I didn't realize was that that was going to change everything. It wasn't the sermon that changed everything. It was her invitation. It was her encouragement. And frankly, it was her challenge to me to do it, to change everything. And as I mentioned this morning at 9.30, we have someone every Sunday who films my 9.30 sermon. If you had taken that sermon and you were able to somehow miraculously show it to me at the age of 17, my first response would have been, where'd my hair go and what am I wearing? <laughs> but then it would have been, there's no way that that's me. That th this many years later, that's the same person. Because the other thing that happens is that you in the invitation, unleash power. And when you accept the invitation, God will equip you for the job. God makes it possible for us to do the work that we are willing to step up and do. And so God gave me gifts to do this job. But it took the Reverend Linda Patterson looking at me and seeing something, and God only knows what that was that she saw at that time. But it wasn't this. But she saw something, and she was willing to name it, she was willing to empower it, and she was willing to hold me accountable to do it, just like Mordecai did with Esther. That is who we are called to be. All of us know people, and I'm not just talking about here in this church, but people in our families and in our circle of friends and in our lives who have gifts. There is something about them. And if we are willing to be a little vulnerable, 
but mostly authentic. And to say to this person, you know, we've known each other for a while, and I, I'm just amazed. Every time I, I come here, I mean, we have amazing greeters, but the way you greet me in the pew, your smile and your handshakes and your hugs, man, that hospitality, do you know how many people you could bless by doing that? You know, it's like JR. At some point, somebody was like, we should just unleash JR out front. <laughs> somebody figure that out. That you should just do that. There are people who have named people, right? I just, the, I'm so amazed. You know, I stay here in the pew and I listen to you sing and I'm inspired by that. The way you sing, I can't sing like that, but when you sing, I feel like I'm listening to music come alive and the glory of God is proclaimed and I really think that our music ministry would be blessed by you. It's a little more easy than, have you ever thought about being in the choir? Right? Don't make it sound like a pitch. Make it sound like you actually value the gifts of the person. Right? And sometimes you're planting seeds. Don't harass the person. We are not recruiting people through harassment. Right? Instead, it's about the relationship. I have seen you and I know you. There are people in our church that are magnetic with children. There are people that choose, and God love them for this, they choose to love a child to whom they are not related and not required to love. And they have an impact and these children are drawn to them. And those are the kind of people that we need to say, oh my goodness, have you considered being part of the children's ministry? Because children need to know that there are adults that choose to love them rather than those that must. Not that there's anything wrong with your family members loving you, but the church is a place where people choose to love people. It's a choice. And we can either raise children that way and show them that by recognizing that there are adults that do this naturally and through God-given gifts, or not. That is what it's about. And Mordecai reminds us of this. There are other places in the Bible that work this way, where people recognize that there's a relationship with someone and that their gifts are so vital and important that they cannot go on without them. The entire book of Judges is about this. God raises up ad hoc leaders. Some of them are political and some of them are military. Raises them up to lead God's people for a time because they have a skill set that's needed in that moment. And there's a, a, an entire story about Deborah, the judge Deborah. And she was actually a military leader. She's a very effective military leader. And one day this Captain Barak comes to her and says, I think we're supposed to go to war. Will you discern for me with God whether or not this is what we should do? And Deborah says, yes, the Lord says that this is what you need to do. Go up against them and you will have victory, that you will have military might over them. And so Barak says, I'm not going anywhere without you. I need you to come with me. I need you to be a part of this with me. And Deborah says, all right, I'll go with you. Yeah, if that's what you want. But she saw in him the ability to do this, and he was like, well, I want you to come with me. And that's part of it, is recognizing that we're not just sending people on their own. We're asking people if they want to go, we'll go with you, we'll support you. We will empower you and equip you to do what you need to do. And we will just watch God set free in you and bless the church. Churches that understand this are churches that grow and thrive. Churches that think that all we do is task out finding people to other people don't understand the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not a one ad. The body of Christ is an invitation to take your rightful place in the kingdom of God. That is what it is. And part of that invitation is about our relationship that we have with people. It's about seeing something of sacred worth in another person. Seeing something 
so profoundly beautiful that to hide it would be to deny God's glory for all. And that's how we have to look at it. Because ultimately, the Bible is filled with people that if they had not been called into account, if they had not been challenged to do so, they would not have done what God needed them to do and what we have received as their spiritual descendants. Abraham didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Stop lying about his wife. Moses didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Go set my people free. There are so many people in the scriptures that didn't want to do what God wanted them to do. But the most important ones that really step up are the ones who get the personal invitation. The ones who, rec who are recognized for their gifts. Think about the four, the inner circle of the apostles. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus walks down to the shore where they're fishing and recognizes that they're good fishers. Recognizes that they got some skills and says, if you want to come with me, I will make you fishers of people. I recognize you've got some skills here. Let me show you how to take them to the next level. And they do. But they were invited. And there was an implicit compliment for their ability. And that's what it is. You acknowledge what you see in another person. And then you invite them into the fullness of their place in the body of Christ. And that will make the church better. It will build the kingdom bigger. I mean, right now, you just heard the announcement that at the 930 worship service, there's room for people to find their musical place in the worship life of this church. There's a place for people. And part of that is us realizing that I guarantee you that some of the people that should be leading that are already in our midst. But I also guarantee you that there are people that maybe God will send here and that we have to embrace and that we have to recognize their gifts and encourage them to take their right place. And so we have to be at work. Our time for being at work is now. That we will fulfill this need because ultimately at the end of the day, one of the most important things any church does is worship our God. And we're going to continue to do that. But we also worship our God and how we have right relationship with other people, how we tend to the missions and the ministries of the church, and our commitment to not only recognize and celebrate the goodness of God in another person, but to empower them, just as Jesus did with his own apostles, to step up into the body of Christ. And all of us have our rightful place here. And if God had wanted us simply to be passive, God wouldn't have given us legs and feet and arms and hands. God wants us to engage. And God wants us to continue to build and to rise and to make the world look more and more like the church that Christ suffered, died, and rose again to bring forth. And we can do that. We must do that. That's what Crozet and the world deserve because God has said so. And as Esther learns, don't get in the way of God. <laughs> do what God wants and things are a lot better. I'll tell you my running for my call story another time. But here we are. And you know what God wants you to do. Some of you can already feel the nudging in the heart 
and the inspiration in the mind and the edginess of the spirit that can't be quelled until you do the will of God. So do it. Do it. It's a risk. But the reward for the kingdom of God always outweighs the risk. And if one person in all of Scripture can testify to that, it is Esther. May we follow her lead, and may we continue to serve God, build the kingdom, and help everyone find their rightful place in the body of Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.